Hey, what's going on, everyone? Um, welcome to the first episode of this book breakdown podcast that I'm going to be doing, where I will be breaking down not even entire books, but just individual chapters and subsections from books from my own library. Um, and if you've seen my library, you know that there's a lot of books in it. And I thought today I would start out with one of my favorite books. Um, and it's actually it's hard for me to narrow down my favorite books, but this one has always remained in the top five, probably top two, um, for years now. I've had this book for maybe five, six years, and I started reading it in the beginning. Um, but the build-up to it is pretty, um, it's, it's very, I don't want to say repetitive, but it's uh, like a lot of books, the good stuff is at the end, and the author makes you, you know, you, there's a lot of foundational knowledge that you have to acquire uh, before you get to the end part. So what I did, you know, I kind of read the beginning and then I skipped the end part, and that's the um, that's what I'll be doing today. So, the book is called Egalitarian Envy, and the subtitle is The Political Foundations of Social Justice. And the author is a Spanish essayist who died in two thousand two. He was born in nineteen twenty four. His name is Gonzalo Fernandez de la Mora. Um, you know, not obviously not someone super well known, but this book is actually translated. I think you know the. The translator deserves a lot of credit. Um, his name is Antonio Nicholas. And this book, I mean, the fact that this is translated and a lot of times, you know, very good points and knowledge is lost in translation. And the fact that I was reading this and just, it's one of those books where every few seconds you kind of have to stop and pause and underline and highlight and just kind of soak in just the the amazing, you know, knowledge that he puts in here. And to think that this is uh, already translated I can only imagine what the um, the original text in Spanish, uh, you know, probably looks like. So, I'm not doing the whole book, obviously. Like I said, I'm doing. Sometimes I'll be doing chapters. Sometimes I'll do subsections. So for this one, we'll be doing um, part B, section four, and then subsections one, two, three, four, and five. And section four is called envy as a political factor. So just real quick to recap, very quickly. Um, this book is about envy. Um, it's about literally exactly what you're thinking. It's about the actual thing we call envy, the, the trait. And he breaks it down by different kinds of envy, um, what, what the, you know, the consequences of it are in different areas. Um, but mostly, you know, what I'm interested in is uh, politics, as you know. And so I kind of skipped to the, um, the political uh, sections. The the one thing that's interesting about this book is when I came across it, I actually came across this book through a quote of his, and I cannot find this quote anywhere. I've been looking for it everywhere. Um, maybe it's in parts of the book that I haven't got to. I've read maybe sixty percent of this book. Maybe um, you know I'm still searching for it. But essentially, the quote, and this was maybe five years ago, was something along the lines of where like white people. I don't want to butcher the quote, so I'm not even going to try it. But basically, like white people will become so like. I don't want to say privilege, but they'll create this rift where they'll even shun their own whiteness, something along those lines. And it kind of intrigued me because, as you know, kind of five years ago, if you were really paying attention, that's when you kind of started seeing, you know, the seeds being planted of what's happening. Not even really the seeds, because you could say that happened decades ago, but you kind of got a sense of like where we were headed, which is kind of exactly where we're at now. So that's um, how I came across this book. So I'll stop talking, and um, I just want to recap. So the subsection four has five parts in it, like I said. The first one is called Origin of the Division, and I'll explain that. 
Um, the second one is social justice. The third one is ideological correlation. The fourth one is egalitarianism and orthodoxy. And the fifth one is social development. And I can already tell, I mean, like I said, I highlighted and underlined so many things. It basically was almost every sentence in these five sections is underlined. There's so much good stuff in here. But let's just break it down. So this isn't like some audio book. I'm not going to be reading. I'll be reading a little bit and then just breaking it down, giving like the commentary to how it ties into today. Um, because just real quick tangent, everything is cyclical. I mean, this guy was born in 1924 died in 2002. He obviously has seen a lot of things through the last century growing up there, um, but many authors have seen the, the same patterns and the same cycles that we're seeing today, so nothing is really new. And so if you really want a white pill, this is kind of uh, a good way to, you know, be positive about where we're headed in this world. You know, we might have to weather the storm a little bit, but this is nothing new. Um, the, a lot of different civilizations and nations and whatnot have experienced the things the social factors that we're seeing today. And I used to think, you know, well, it's different now with the advent of technology and modes of communication and whatnot, but it's really not because the, the people hasn't, the people have not changed, even though everything around us has changed. So I will just jump right into it. So origin of the division, section one, he breaks down something that everyone knows basically, which is that the both political parties kind of divide people. Um, now, a lot of people say that, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, both these parties are the same, whatnot, but then they go and they vote and they get, you know, hyped up about the system. And you really, when, once you kind of really break away and kind of figure it out, you get red-pilled, you, you start to understand that it's not just the, that these par parties are the same. You start to really understand the mechanisms of how they do it. So he kicks it off kind of in the first paragraph saying that he's defining power. And he defines it as, you know, power is illegitimate pressure on people and ranges from threats to revolution, including at times the abuse of power. So, I mean, very standard definition he has there. My definition of it that I've always used is power is when A makes B do something that B um, otherwise would not do. So you're kind of using coercion. So when you make someone do something they wouldn't normally do, that's power. Effectively saying the same thing in his definition. Um, so yeah, he just kind of kicks it off there. And then he starts talking about popular support and how that's um, that's a tactic used by the government and whatnot. So he says... The greater the popular support, the more deeply governments intervene in the lives of people, which is what has been happening in the West since the end of the 18th century. So this is, I mean, like I said, this guy, has, he's, when he was writing this, this is a long time ago, and he's basically exactly saying what's happening today. So the greater the popular support, which is exactly what we have now, like we rally around these two political parties, we're super polarized, um, they have a lot of support, um, you know, it's even, it's embedded in our culture. I mean, you look at sports, music, everything. Like, politics has made itself into everything. So the pop, the more the popular support of the government, um, the more they intervene in people's lives. And obviously, that's happening today. Um, so he continues, and he says that the governed are not political enemies by nature of the political fact. Rather, they are so because the political class tries with great effort to divide them. So exactly, you know, exactly that. Like, people, if you just leave them alone, they're not adversarial. They're not um, they're not enemies and whatnot, but the division has to occur because that's what keeps the whole thing going. That's what keeps the whole house of cards going. So they have to pin, you know, neighbor versus neighbor, family versus family and whatnot. Um, and so that's how they do that. So he's saying that naturally just people are not political enemies. Um, like the people that are governed, he's saying it's a political class that tries with great effort to divide them. So if you leave them alone, it's not like a natural phenomenon for people to be wanting to rip each other's hair out, you know? 
So this is just a very important thing to uh, to understand. And like I said, this is section subsection one. Um, it's not over yet, but it's very basic. It's just building the foundation. He goes on to say that the elites, um, you know, the more so, the less powerful they are. So uh, this is very important, and I don't want to talk about the intelligentsia or the intellectuals right now. That'll be probably a whole other series, to be honest with you, and not even just one episode. So I don't want to go on that tangent, but this is very important to understand, is that the elites, the less of them there are, the more powerful they are. So they try to keep their numbers smaller, and what they do and how they do that is they make things very complex. Um, the, the more the, comp- the complexity of something, the harder it is for someone to get to their level. They, they create a lot of hurdles and obstacles in the way so people cannot get to their level because the smaller they are, the smaller that concentration of people is actually the more power you have. This idea of the majority rules and the majority has the power is just very false. If you ever find yourself on the side of the majority, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, you probably have been deceived. You should really rethink your position and because the truth almost never lies with the majority. It's always in the minority. And I don't say minority as in these people. I'm just saying in general, the minority. So um, the power does not rely, does not lie with the majority. It's always with the minority. Um, wherever You'll find that in so many instances. And so he continues, kind of doesn't really get into um, democracy so much, but he does touch on it a little bit. So he says, within a democratic system, those who aspire to power need a faction that is the most powerful and largest to back them up. The political parties of the masses are not formed from below, but shaped from above. So exactly what I just said, you know, um, the people, the minority, the elites, the small elites that make things complex, they need a large section of the population to back them up. And so you start to get a sense of like this collective nature that they create. They have to create collective nature because how else are you going to get this large group of people to rally around one thing? You'll never do that with true individuals. The individuals won't be part of your like deception and part of your games. So they, you can see kind of where this is headed. So they create this like collective nature, um, collective faction, because that's what's going to um, be backing them up. So the, he says the criteria for dividing the governed, and this is super important. This is exactly, literally verbatim what is happening today. So he says the criteria for dividing the governed is to draw an imaginary line that puts on one side those usually called privileged and that others consider the best. Opposite them on the other side are those often called the people, who are considered less capable. And so he's saying that the goal of the parties is to basically convince the largest number that they are of the people, and the goal of the other side is to persuade them that their interests are represented by the best. So you're, you know, you're taking a large group of people and you're calling them the people, and you're telling them that, hey, there's these other people that are opposite to you, they're, called, they're privileged, they're, they consider themselves the best, you know, and then you go to the, the side that is privileged and the best, and you basically persuade them that their interests are represented by, like, them being the best, like, they have to stick to that, so you're creating that division, but one side is bigger, and it's the people side, or the quote, the quote, unquote, people side, um, so yeah, very, very important, um, you know, so there's, this is like this class struggle, um, that appears here, now, when he was writing this, um, you know, I'm sure like critical race theory and all this stuff was still kind of becoming, you know, it's not obviously it's not prominent today, but it's interesting because, you know, we look at class um, and we've kind of veered away from class uh, politics, you know. So in a sense that now everything's kind of like racially motivated, whereas back then it was like class. And I think if you're someone on the right and you really want to, um, you know, appeal to people on the left, you can actually use Marxism against them because, 
you kind of go back to what Marx said. Now, the guy was, contrary to what people say, and I'm, if you know me, you know my opinions on Marxism and communists. It's not, not, I don't shy away from that. But the guy was actually 95% probably right about you know what he said. It's just that that last 5% was he was so wrong about. Um, but if you can make it go back to like class struggles, you can really convince people um, and bring it back to like the class. Um, that's a whole other topic. So anyways, he continues and he says, he asks, how can a feeling that can constitutes such an antisocial attitude be used as a political adhesive? It does, it does so by establishing an alliance among those who share common envies to carry out negative actions against the envied. So there's this group of people. Now, this is basically a description, a light description of the intelligentsia, which I'll get into in another episode. But he's basically saying you have this group of people that are envious, and so they carry out negative actions against the envy, the envied. And he's saying how do you have, when you have this toxic trait like envy, how do you keep people together, you know? Because if you're envious against other people, you you don't really work together, you know? But what binds the envious together is their hatred against the people that they envy. Just real quick tangent because this is important. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, when I talk about this stuff, okay, well, then what's the solution? What can the people do? How do the people rise up or whatever? And the answer is they're not. The people just are not. They historically don't... Um, you know, uh, what's going to end up happening eventually is that the intellectuals the in, that are in you know, the intelligentsia themselves will turn on each other once they've taken care of the people. Like once they've got the people out of the way and use them, which if, what basically happens is once they use them, they're like the useful idiots. There's no use for them anymore. And in a lot of, you know, totalitarian nations, the useful idiots are the first people to be lined up against the wall and like killed. Um, but once the useful idiots are done with, the intellectuals then turn on each other. So the intellectual will have to be the one that defeats the system that they themselves created. It, I don't believe it will come from the people. But again, that's a totally different tangent, and let's continue. So everything up until now was subsection uh, 1. Um, so now subsection 2 is called social justice. So let's see. He talks about um, the promotion of envy and that it's not carried out in public, but rather it's undercover. So he says a contemporary disguise of collective envy is what is called social justice. So, again, you just literally the same words that you hear today. Um, social justice, uh, um, you know, equity, uh, all this stuff. These are the same terms. And he continues, he says, How does this ideological and derivative argumentation run? A fundamental postulate is established that the more just a society is, the more equal its members are in opportunities position, and wealth, and immediately it is established that the party will fight without rest to achieve such justice. So, again, it's, um, that's basically what they're saying, is that the more, um, the, 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 basically what he's saying is that the, the more equal, um, the members are in opportunities, position, and wealth, that that's what justice is, but that's really not the case. So, like, they convince people that, like, justice is when everyone's kind of the same, but you don't want that collectivity again which is what they're trying to build because i just said in subsection one like they're trying to get that faction of people so it continues and he says equality is a uh promise for the envious the definitive incentive so you have this group of people that are envious basically the useful idiots and th they're envious of the people that have more than them and so equality is how you promise them you know how you get them on your side so you you're basically not and this is, I'll get into this in subsection, subsection four, I think it is, but he basically talks about how, like, you don't really raise them up. You kind of just bring others down to their level. Um, so that's one of, like, the tenets of social justice is that 
you know, this equality, but even then, these days, equality isn't even used, it's equity, that's the term that's used a lot, um, but yeah, it's like, that's what they use, they promise equality and equity, I guess, these days, um, to, for the envious, to get them on their side. He continues, and he actually does touch on Marxism here, so what does he say? He says, the call to crusades against the superiority of others, as for example by Marxists, has a large following, not because the envious and the resentful are a majority, but because potentially they may become so, and thus egalitarian ideologies continue to promote such emotions. So, you know, he's saying basically that, you know, egalitarian, he says, is the opiate of the envious, and demagogues are the self-interested distributors of its massive consumption. So basically, the last two things I've been saying is the same thing. It's, you know, you promote equality, and you get people on your side, and that's how you build, um, that's how you build that collective, because the majority of people are going to be, they're just, I mean, they're just like envious people. They're not, not everyone's talented. Greatness is not, it's in a few individuals. It's not in most people. And then not only that, if you want to get into the politics and economics of this, you create the system where people don't have things or they lack the means to achieve greatness, even if they do have it. Not to say that these people don't, but it's hard for them to even get it. You know, you'd rack them up with student loans. You make it hard for them to buy a house, to get married. Um, you know, uh, you the, the job market, you just bury them in debt. You create all these economic conditions against them, and then, yeah, that's going to create a lot of envy against people that do attain uh, what they want. So that's, um, you know, that's how the economics is involved in that. So he continues on, he says, the net result of competing economic forces will always be more satisfactory for some than to others. But this is neither just nor unjust. So yeah, exactly what I just said. It's just that like economic forces are just going to create inequalities, which is fine. Like you don't have to have perfect equality. Um, you know, it's just, uh, he talks about Hayek and how he says the expression social justice starts according to this great liberal thinker by being a redundancy since justice is found not only for and in society. Um, besides, it is a notion that lacks a rigorous meaning since no one has been able to determine except in the marketplace what would be the absolutely just distribution of the patrimony and income in a mass society. So like this definition, social justice, who determines what's just and what's not? You can't even, like, you can't centrally control that definition. It's only found in the marketplace. And by the way, when he says liberal thinker, the definition of liberal that was used back in the day, back then, is not the same as today. So don't think it's like some Democrat today. Um, so to wrap up subsection two, he basically says that egalitarian distribution without regard for individual merits and um, is, is inequality rather than justice. So that's what it is. It's, you know, by spreading egalitarianism by forcing everyone to be equal that's actually inequality um and it's not justice and i think it's i think it's aristotle or plato one of them maybe i don't know bertrand russell or someone said that you know um uh, it's just such a great quote i forget i don't have it off the top of my head but it's basically saying like when you try to make things equal you actually end up with inequality and that's basically what he's saying today or he's saying right now so i'm going to stop there um there's two more sections and there's a lot more um, actually the next two parts, there's a lot more. So three parts actually. So there's three, four and five left. So I'm just going to stop here. So that's sub subsection one and two, one being the origin of the division and two being social justice. So I'll do next, we'll do ideological correlation, um, egalitarianism and orthodoxy, and then social development. So we'll stop right there for the first two sections and then do three more after this.